0: You are listening to the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc. All right. You can find your seats. I'm not worth standing for. But good morning, LifePoint. It's good to be here. It's an uh, honor and privilege. I see a lot of faces. Ryan, we've got Jacob Marshall, we got Sanchez in the house. Got to see uh, Brett Ittings. Uh, Many of you know Brett and Jessica. Uh, They they are um, from our church, and I was probably in seventh grade. I told this in the early service, Uh, but Brett was a senior in high school, and I thought he was cool. Now, looking back, he wasn't that cool, okay? Don't tell him that, but uh, he was like the kindest, most cool dude, Um, and uh, I think that Him and another senior, Jesse Johannesson, which um, maybe a few of you know, they took me to my first concert when I was in seventh grade, and they were a senior, and they took me to a Reliant K concert. How cool is that, to have a senior pouring into a seventh grader? I was a prepubescent twerp back there, and they put up with me. It was good. Well, a little bit about myself. Uh, I'm Austin. My wife, Elizabeth, would you stand, wave? I know, you probably don't want that. That's my wife, Elizabeth. Absolutely love her. Uh, we've been married. It'll be eight years this next month. Uh, next month is September, by the way. Today's August. And uh, she, everywhere we go, I have to make it known to the world that she is four and a half years older than I am. Now, uh, I, I let people know that for for two reasons. One, she's not quite cougar status. Um, she's a slightly smaller cat. She's a puma, okay? So... Uh, And then the second is I I really believe that she married a younger man uh, in hopes to finish raising me in the way that she wanted me to be. But uh, she bit off more than she could (laughs) chew in in that regards. And uh, I love you so much, Elizabeth. I'm so thankful uh, just for you and my life pouring into me. And uh, you're just a, a wonderful person. And I love her a lot. And because I love her a lot, we've got three kids. If you're wondering how that happens... You can talk to Pastor Tony, and he'll be sure to have that conversation with you. But uh, we've got three kids. They're here downstairs. Sam is six years old. He's going into first grade. If you were to ask him what grade he's in, he'd say, I'm not in a grade. I'm a summer breaker. So uh, he's, he's a lot of fun. And we've got two daughters, Paisley, who's four, who is going into preschool. And we've got Essie, who is three, going on three-nager. And she uh, thinks she runs the roost. So I remember meeting Pastor Drew for the first time uh, about 10 years ago. And uh, it was coming up this fall 10 years ago at a youth convention, the Iowa Youth Convention, uh, for the Assemblies of God. And I was a senior in college. I'd come down representing North Central University where I was attending and uh, set up a booth, and i 'm trying to recruit kids, get their information so that we can spam them and you know try to get them to come up to the, the to the cities and go to school and I remember going up to drew and saying hey have you have you thought about going uh, to, to to north central you know what 's your plans?" And he quickly informed me that he was married and the Chi Alpha director at Iowa State, and he was also trying. And I remember walking away from that experience thinking, how did this 12-year-old looking man get married, right? Like there's hope for me. He still looks young, but I love Pastor Drew um, and pray for your pastor. I know he's out and he's having some time just to be poured into and refreshed. Uh, they're a wonderful, wonderful family. And, and whether you guys realize this or not, you guys have something special here at Life Point. The presence of God doesn't just automatically show up in a church. Because there's a lot of churches that have church without the presence of God. But, but God's presence comes in response to hunger. And I believe that this body is a hungry body meaning it's a hungry congregation that has come together to seek the presence of God. And uh, I shared this in the first service. I'll share it again here. Um, If you haven't started tithing to this church and you call this church your home, you need to step under the authority of the scripture and begin to tithe and pay your tithe to the Lord. There is a blessing that comes to that. If you come and you're taken from this church and you're being blessed by the ministry that happens, it's time that you begin to invest back into the church so that the kingdom of God can be furthered here in local aims and in this community. And above and beyond our tithes, we give offerings into missions. God honors people that have a mission-minded heart and he honors churches that have a mission-minded heart. You say, I don't have any extra to give to missions, you ask God, and I promise you, he will begin to pour funds, unique funds, maybe funds from the government that are being deposited into your bank account to give towards missions, and and God will honor that. Uh, That has nothing to do uh, with our topic today. Uh, I wasn't asked to share that, but I did feel impressed in my heart to share that this morning. So. You guys have been in a a series this summer called Awakening with the tagline, every generation needs an encounter with God. And this morning, we're going to zoom out and have kind of an aerial look, like a 30,000 foot view of scripture. I personally love exegetical teaching the most. How many understand what I'm talking about like that, like where you get a, a portion of passage and you just dissect it. You get down into the nitty-gritty, the the um, Greek and the Hebrew, and you just really understand that passage. But this morning, we're going to kind of zoom out and we're going to uh, look at some of the earliest families of passing a generational faith um, in the early part of Scripture. And uh, we're going to be taking a look at themes and uh, Um, different patterns that happened. Why do we do that to get this aerial look? It's to build a holistic, true theology because you can become so pinpointed in your theology and in your study that you actually come up with wrong theology if you're not testing it with other scriptures. Because God is the same yesterday, today, and Forever and His Word is the same, and so what Jesus and what God and what the Holy Spirit was communicating in Genesis is the same message that He's communicating in Revelation. And so today we're going to kind of zoom out and look at this. The title of my message is "Passing the Baton." I figured I'd keep it with the Olympics. How many been watching the Olympics? I enjoy it, um, but I don't enjoy. I like it when it's more in our time zone where you can watch it during the day and not watch highlights. It feels like anticlimactic to. Watch something where it's like, I'm cheering for someone that's already happened eight hours ago, right? Um, So passing the baton, and and, uh, we're going to be looking at the generational handoffs um, between some of the Bible's earliest families. Before we go any further, I just want to pray and invite Holy Spirit just to speak through me, open up our ears, hearts, minds. So Jesus, Holy Spirit. We need you and I pray God that you would speak through me, that you would fill me, that you would allow me to communicate in this service, in this moment for this particular group of people and that every ear, every heart, every mind would be open to what you have God. So I pray that every preconceived idea, every barrier, every distraction would be gone in the name of Jesus and you'd give us the ability to hear your voice and respond today. And all God's people said, Amen. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 6. And today's message is going to be geared towards parents and grandparents because we are called to pass a baton of faith from one generation to the next generation. But it doesn't matter if you are single and ready to mingle, or you are married and you don't have kids, or you're a crazy lady with 14 cats. These principles that I'm going to be sharing today are applicable to wherever you're at in life. Because whether you realize it or not, you are all passing a baton of faith to someone. It might be a coworker, a neighbor, a friend, a niece, a nephew. There is someone that is following you and you are passing your faith along. So let's lean in. And before we read in Deuteronomy chapter 6, it's important that we understand the context in which Moses wrote this passage. Okay, so we're going to fast forward from Adam all the way to Abraham. Abraham is considered the father of our faith right how many grew up in sunday school with that little song like father abraham had many sons many sons had father abraham i am one of them and so are you so let's all praise the lord right hand left hand right foot left foot turn around shake your butt you know do that whole thing it's like my favorite song growing up and anybody remember that no okay so we've got abraham the father of our faith God promises to establish his people through his lineage. And then Abraham miraculously has a son, and his name was Isaac, right? And then Isaac has two sons, Esau and Jacob. Now Esau was the firstborn. He had the first right. And so the lineage was supposed to go Abraham, Isaac, Esau. But Esau is just this big, dumb brute, and he comes in all hungry, and Jacob sells A bowl of stew, and and Esau sells his birthright for a bowl of stew and says, I no longer have the firstborn status. And and then Jacob, his younger brother, steals the blessing and and tricks um, Isaac into giving him that blessing. And so now in this patriarch of people, you've got Abraham, you've got Isaac, and you've got Jacob. And then Jacob has how many sons? 12 sons, and one of them, their name was uh, Joseph, (laughs) not Moses, (laughs) definitely not Moses, Joseph. And uh, Joseph was betrayed by his uh, lovely 11 brothers and sold into slavery, and eventually through a, a series of circumstances, he finds himself in Egypt and second in command only behind Pharaoh himself. There's a great famine that spread the lands and now Jacob's family and his 11 brothers are traveling to Egypt to receive food because Joseph had heard from God and stored all this food. And so Joseph is standing second in command and his brothers come up and kneel before him just like he had envisioned. And Joseph, instead of being spiteful and with one word telling, get rid of these people, throw them in prison, kill them, do whatever, he shows them mercy and, his, and grace. And he says, come live with me in Egypt. So uh, Joseph's 11 brothers and his father, Jacob, all moved. There's about 70 in total is what scripture says. They all moved to Egypt. Jacob's name, the father of the 12 sons, is also Israel okay? So what happens over the next 430 years is that the nation of Israel, or Jacob's lineage of all of these 12 sons, begins to grow and, grow and grow and grow and grow and rapidly grow, Scripture says. See, the Trojans hadn't shown up on scene yet to prevent that from happening and slow that process down. What we have is the Israelites are delivered from captivity in Egypt, okay? And and so their family grows. They go to Egypt. They're delivered out of captivity. Remember the 10 plagues? Anybody seen Prince of Egypt, right? Um, They're wandering in the wilderness. And now at this point, in Deuteronomy, Moses, they're just about ready to enter into the promised land. Moses is nearing the end of his life, but they're still out in the, the, the wilderness. And this is um, one of the most famous passages in scripture. In fact, Jesus himself quotes this scripture in Mark chapter 12. So that kind of sets the scene of where we're at and, and uh, we've got Israel, this nation that's in the wilderness. These are Moses' words. Would you stand with me and we're gonna read. I promise the rest of my sermon is not as long as my intro, but it's important to understand context. It says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your, and with all your, and with all your. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. You may find your seat. So the portion of text uh, that we're looking at today, the Jews called the Shema. Turn to your neighbor and say Shema. Shema refers, and the, the Hebrew word, means to hear or to listen. And so the Shema refers to verses four and five of our text. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, or listen, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Now, if you were Jewish, it's very likely that at this time, you would have repeated the Shema every morning and every night to remind yourself. It's kind of like the equivalent to the the Lord's Prayer in Christianity Today. And the purpose of reciting the Shema um, was to constantly remind the people of God that the one true, that Yahweh was the one true God, and that loving him with all of your heart, soul, and strength was a must. See, Israel has a horrible track record if you look at the history of them worshiping only God, exclusively God, monotheistic religion of worshiping God. Right? In verses seven through nine in our text, Really bring in the call to be intentional in your conversations with your family and how to use those opportunities to lead your family in the ways of God. So knowing the context in which this was written, right? Knowing knowing the history, why, why do you think that Moses even has to address this? Why is Moses writing this passage? After all, like Israel... Was God's chosen people, right? Why is why is Moses even having to address this? Well, I think we wrongly assume that God's chosen people always act godly, and they don't. See, after being in Egypt for four hundred and thirty years, the baton of faith had been dropped. They came out of Egypt, a polytheistic nation, meaning they were worshiping all sorts of gods. Moses goes up on Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments and to receive other laws. And he comes down. And what have they done? After the ten plagues that they saw God sent, that Yahweh sent, after being delivered through the Red Sea, after manna coming from heaven and water coming from a rock, Moses goes up for 40 days and he comes back down. And what does he see? They're a golden cow and they're singing kumbaya around it. And I can just imagine Moses just being just irritated and he breaks the commandments. He's like, I gave you one rule, right? One rule and you had to go and do that. Israel was not a godly nation at this point. They're very young. They don't even fully understand who Yahweh is. Maybe that's you here this morning and you haven't fully come to understand. This is a good portion of scripture to look, to remind yourself that there is one true God and to love him with everything that you have in that. So how do we get from Father Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, all these godly patriarchs of our faith, to this ungodly nation of Israel? Well, the baton of faith, I believe, Was dropped. And this morning I'm going to give you three reasons as to why and how the baton was dropped. And the first, I believe, is because of a lack of personal encounters with God. See, in Genesis chapter 18, Abraham uh, has a personal encounter with God where God manifests himself in the form of three men. You can read about that in Genesis 18. His son Isaac has a personal encounter with God where in chapter 26, it says that the Lord appeared to him. How cool would that be to have God actually appear to yourself? Then you get down to um, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. What does Jacob do in Genesis 32? Anybody like wrestling? He wrestles with God. He has this personal encounter, and that's where he ch- gets his name changed from Jacob to Israel, Right? And then we see Joseph have all these dreams and God is speaking to him through these dreams. We see all these people have personal encounters, but, but, but from the time of Joseph all the way till up until Moses and Moses encountering God in the burning bush and personal encounter there, the Bible records zero personal encounters of his people having encounters with him. Now, is it fair to say that That God was just silent during this time? I don't think that we can conclude that. Is it fair to even draw the line that um, there were no personal encounters with God during that time? I don't know that we can draw that line because scripture doesn't say. But if it was important and impactful, you think that it would have shown up in the history of Israel and the Israelites. I think there's this lack of a personal experience. See, Uh, Personal encounters with God are the moments that act as anchors for our souls in times of doubt. Maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking, man, I just don't know how I'm going to get through this valley or I don't know how I'm going to get through this storm. If you've had a personal encounter with God and you've had moments with God, bring yourself back to that point because it will act as an anchor for your soul. Every personal encounter that I've had is with Jesus is one more moment in my life that I can look back and stand on. And while we're not meant to live on the mountaintop, Uh, we, we do remember those experiences to speak to our doubt and to our unbelief. So I ask the question, and we answer this question, how do we ensure that our kids have personal encounters with God? How do we avoid what happened in Egypt to the Israelites all those years ago? And I think the answer in this instance is overly simple we give our children and we give those we are leading the opportunities to encounter God's presence. We bring them to corporate gatherings such as church. We take them and bring them to youth group. We send them to church camp. We have weekend retreats. We go on vacations as families with the sole purpose of our encountering God and seeking his presence and seeking his face and hearing his voice. We, we come to Wednesday noon prayer and we sit in his presence and we create opportunities for those that you are leading to have a personal encounter with God. The more opportunities they have to encounter God, the more likely it will be that they actually encounter God. Maybe you're here this morning and it's the first time in like five or six weeks you realize that you are shooting yourself in the foot by limiting the opportunities that you have now I'm not to, to encounter God I'm not saying that you can't encounter God in your truck because I do I'm not saying that you can't encounter God in, in nature because I do but there is something very special and very powerful where two or three are gathered hear me church that that when we come together with the sole purpose of encountering God, you can have an individual moment, a personal encounter with God where the things of earth grow strangely dim, as we say. and we can have this sanctuary within a sanctuary and we can encounter God. We need to get rid of the excuses that we come up with for why we're missing church, for why our kids aren't a part of youth group, for why I'm not in a small group, for why this and that. All of those things, that doesn't replace our relationship with God, but they're there to create opportunity so that you can encounter God. Right? Turn to your neighbor and say, stupidest turn to your other neighbor that you just ignored because you don't like them as much and say, most is stupidest, okay? It is the most stupidest thing in the world for parents to punish their kids and keep their kids from any church activity or youth group. I, I no joke, I was a college age pastor for eight and a half years. And I no joke had a mom one time say, yeah, if, if his behavior doesn't just turn around, I'm just gonna not let him go to church camp. And I'm thinking, Lucretia, he needs church camp. What are you doing keeping him from it, right? Like, oh man, kid, you, you can't go to church tonight. You can't go to midweek church tonight because you don't have your homework done. You know, I'd rather have a kid that has an opportunity to encounter the power of Jesus on a midweek service and then him have to stay up a little bit extra late on a Wednesday night and be a little bit tired in math class on a Thursday than keeping my kid from the presence of God or an opportunity to be in the presence of God. Let's get rid of the excuses. You might be sitting here thinking, well, my kid doesn't want to be at church. It's a fight to even get him here. You know what my parents did and what Elizabeth and I are trying to intentionally do now with our children? Is they intentionally, hear me parents, grandparents... They intentionally invested in relationships that were tied to the church. So that means I am intentionally selecting families of people in our church that have kids of our same age, and we are trying to build relationship and friendship with them. Because when they go to school for 30 hours a week, but church for only about four hours, in our case, a week, where do you think the stronger relationship is going to be? School. So if the parents are intentional with building relationships outside where it says, hey, you're going to see so-and-so a little bit more regular, you know, what, what does that do? What does that do when you build those relationships? Well, what it does is it gives your kids an extra incentive to say, I don't, I don't know anybody at church. No, I know. Judah's going to be there. Phoebe's going to be there. Garden's gonna be there. I'm so excited to go to church because I get to see my friends. Now the pessimist in the room is thinking, well, that's just so manipulative. You're a manipulative parent. No, that's a wise parent. That's a parent that is using earthly wisdom to to ensure that your children are longing and there's not this fight to be in the presence of God. See, the truth is, is that most Christian families attend two out of four Sundays a month and they prioritize giving their kids just about every other opportunity rather than the opportunity to encounter Jesus' presence. And you're not just limiting opportunities for them, you're limiting opportunities for yourself. If your kids don't see you having a personal encounter and personal encounters with God, then how can the baton be passed? People who don't have kids, if your friends, coworkers, family members, neighbors, whoever, if they aren't around other people having personal encounters, how are they ever going to even know that there is something more? When was the last time you brought someone into the presence of God? When was the last time that you invited your coworker so that they can, they can have an opportunity to encounter Jesus? Here, this is, this is the easiest way for you to be able to, to have an opportunity for your coworker. Friday rolls around in the office and what do you do? Is there anything that I can pray with you for? And instead of just saying, okay, I'll take that back to the prayer. No, you grab their hand right there and you pray. And I can't tell you how many times that I've prayed with individuals that don't believe in God or openly, you know, deny his existence or whatever it is. and But they're open to prayer and I grab their hands and we pray. And what happens? Waterworks start happening. You know, just, just start crying. They sense the presence of God. I still don't believe in God, but that was pretty special. Thanks for praying for me, pastor. <laughs> Man, they're encountering God and you're giving an opportunity for that. Let's let's be a church that gives opportunity to encounter God. The second reason why the baton of faith was dropped, I believe, is because there is a lack of discipleship. In verse chapter or in verse 7 of our text, uh, it highlights how to disciple. Now, during that time in history, everything was passed down uh, through oral tradition. It was verbal discipleship. See, they didn't have um, Bibles. They didn't have paperback books. They had tablets, the stone kind, right? And uh, discipleship relied heavily on verbal, verbally passing down the information. And I would argue that in the same way back then that today, discipleship mainly happens through a verbal pass down of information, See, growing up, my dad was very intentional about um, having what I called like TED talks, but my dad's name is James, so it was like James talks. And we lived about five minutes uh, from from the school, from the Urbendale Middle School and High School. Um, most days, it only took us about three and a half minutes to to get there because we were running late of some accord. But every day, my dad would tell me something. He'd say, Austin. Uh, When you hear a swear word in the hallways, weavers don't talk that way, Christians don't talk that way. Identify it as a swear word and don't let your mind be filled with that. He'd say, Austin, one of these days you're going to go over to someone's house or someone's going to show you a magazine or a picture of pornography and you need to know exactly what you're going to do in that moment and you're going to walk away. You need to make that decision. Austin, one of these days, you're going to be somewhere and someone's going to give you opportunity for alcohol or weed or whatever this is. You need to make up your mind. Austin, your, your words have the power of life and death. Are you going to choose to speak life into someone's life or are you going to choose to speak death into someone's life every single day? And you know, as a middle school brat that I was, you know what I'd say? I know, Dad, you told me last week. I know, I know, I know. But you know whose voice I heard the first time when someone pulled out a magazine when their parents weren't home? I heard my dad say, "You get out of that room," and I had already made that decision, and it was a no brainer. I just walked out of that room. You know, the first time I was at you and I, and someone put a beer in my hand, I set it right down, and they said, "What? You're not going to drink?" I said, "No. You're going to make me drink? I'll punch you in the face." <laughs> Wasn't even a no brainer. It was a no brainer for me. You know, every time I heard someone swear or talk vulgar in the halls, I, I I could hear my dad's voice. We don't talk that way. Parents, grandparents, what are you speaking into your life? How are you verbally discipling your kids? Because it's one thing to just live a good Christian life but never communicate why you do what you do, right? There has to be both. And if you're going to verbally talk about what um, you're doing, then you better actually do it because it doesn't do a whole lot of good for you to tell your kids... You, you need to share your toys and you need to share your belongings with your siblings if when the offering plate passes in front of you and there's an opportunity to share of your resources to missionaries you don't share. It's, it's, it's one thing to say, hey, you need to forgive your brother and sister, but then they, they hear you speak ill of your brother or your sister because there's some rift in your family and you haven't gotten up on your cross and died to yourself for the reconciliation of your family. Our discipleship has to be more. Men, I'm talking to you in the room. Our discipleship has to be more than just getting up and showing to church, showing up for church and doing the right thing. You need to start talking about why you do what you do. You need to pass that baton on and do it. We see a lack of personal encounters, a lack of discipleship, and lastly, a lack of remembering. So after the Israelites were delivered from captivity, God instructed Moses to have the people observe an annual festival called Passover. What were they remembering? What was the purpose of this? To remember the death angel that had passed over. Remember when they took the lamb's blood and put it over the doorframe? And the death angel, the 10th plague, to set God's people free from the captives of Egypt, to remember this Passover that brought freedom. After they experienced crossing not just the Red Sea but also in the book of joshua where they cross the jordan river during flood stage uh, season and they send the ark of the covenant out in front and the fl- the river stops flowing and they walk across it and what does god instruct joshua to do it says each Person from one of your tribes, set up a stone, and we're going to set up a memorial so that the future generations will always remember this place. They will always remember what God has done for you and and my people. See, in some ways, the world does a better job of remembering than the church does. Let's throw up a statue, you know, so that we never forget, only so that, you know, people can come and tear it down in 200 years or whatever but but we as christians don't don't do a great job of telling the stories of what god has done in and through our lives so i remember at north central there's a professor i only had him for one class his name was dan rector my wife i think maybe had did you have him yeah you had him for probably several classes he was a children's and family uh, professor, and he was a legal midget. He was, pr- no joke, probably just above my belt line about this tall, and he was like the nicest man. I just wanted to pick him up every time I saw him, and and um, I remember him coming into class one day, and he had this big glass jar. It was about this big. The opening was about that big, and and he's carrying this jar, and I'm thinking, I, I hope he doesn't break it, you know, And and he puts it on the counter, and he goes, you know what this is, and we're like, a glass jar with a whole bunch of random stuff in it. I don't know. You know, it had all sorts of things. He said, "This is my manna jar," and he began to tell the class how every item in that jar, whether it was a little um, toy airplane or a pencil or a mouse trap, I remember one of them was a mouse trap. You know, all these different random items in this jar represented a story that he could tell. And so occasionally he'd bring this jar in and he would allow a student to reach in and grab a random item. And then he would begin to tell a story of, of how God provided manna, providing it, right? And he, he, would, he would tell these incredible stories of, of things that God had done. And he said, someday maybe you might have a manna jar in your house and you can put it up on your mantel. And it can be right there, and it's an opportunity to remember what God has done. His was on the mantle right in front of his, his kitchen dining room set, and his grandkids loved to come in and grab a toy or grab whatever and hear a story of what God had done. Neighbors, strangers who come in. What, what's that all about? What's that? That's my manna jar, let me tell you. Pick an item. Parents grandparents? Have you been good about reminding your children of what God has done in and through your family's life over the years that they might not forget? For the people that don't have kids, are are you telling your roommates? Are you telling your co-workers? Are you reminding them to see God's faithfulness in and through your life? Because sometimes, sometimes, You know, the the water just looks too good where you see, man, there's a blessing in following God. Look at that person walk through this tragedy, and they've got peace. They've got a smile on their face. How is that? Let me tell you. See, we tend to tell stories around holidays, but why not make it a habit of telling stories and remembering what God has done for us so that we can pass that baton of faith saying God was is and forever will be a faithful God who loves us and is involved in our life. As the worship team comes, I just want to remind you of the greatest discipler of all times. His name was Jesus Christ, and he did these three things very well. He had personal encounters with his, his father. He would Scripture says he would get up early, and he would go alone by himself, or he would go to the garden, and he would be with his father. And then what do you see in the last days? He invites his disciples to have personal encounters with his heavenly father. We we see him communicate and verbally disciple anybody and everybody. Everybody who would give him an ear, he was talking about what he was doing and why he was doing it. And then we see Jesus on the night that he was betrayed take bread and take his cup and say, when you do this, do this in remembrance of Of me. Church, I believe that the Spirit of God has been speaking to some of you. And He's been revealing areas that we can improve our chances of passing the baton to the next generation, however that looks like. Would you stand with me across this room, close your eyes, bow your heads? our eyes or bow our heads just out of religion or that's just because what we do at the end of a church service we do it just to to step out of the flesh and step into the spirit to allow his spirit to speak to our spirit so that we can remove the physical distractions so so jesus holy spirit god would you speak to our hearts you're here this morning, and you'd say, Pastor Austin, I feel like I could do a better job at giving my family or myself the opportunity to have personal encounters with God. Would you just raise your hand? I want to pray for you specifically right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God, I pray just that these people would be hungry for the the presence of God, that they would step into the presence of God, that they would be open to the presence of God, and they would have personal encounters. I pray for the soul here that it's been a long time where they're even questioning what their personal encounter may have felt like years ago, that you would begin to pour out a tidal wave of your spirit and your mercy and your grace, and they would in this moment begin to have a personal encounter with you, that they would be clothed in your forgiveness and your mercy and your grace. would be showered on with your love so Jesus we just invite your spirit I believe there are other people in this room that you'd say man I I, I realize that I could do a better job of verbally communicating and verbally discipling those that I am passing the baton on and if that's you and you say I need the spirit to loosen my tongue so that I can communicate would you just raise your hand yes I see your hand in the back yes yes Yes, God, I pray that these men that have their hands up right now, that they would be empowered. I pray that they would experience just the freedom of explaining what they are doing. And I pray that you would empower them through your Holy Spirit. I pray for the single mom, God, that, that, that she would not feel overwhelmed, but she would always bring it back to you. Help us, Holy Spirit. last is that maybe you realize that you haven't done a great job of remembering God's faithfulness and communicating that to, to anybody and everybody that would would give ear and you just say in some way I feel like I need to start setting up some some altars some some memory stones like Just moments and things that somehow I can just talk about what God has done. You say, I just need to remind myself and remind others this morning. You say, I need to do a better job of remembering. Yes, God. Thank you, Jesus. Yes, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. God, I pray that today as we sing and we declare that we will build our lives around you, the cornerstone of our foundation. I pray that we wouldn't do that in our own might, in our own power, in our own strength by pulling up our bootstraps but God that we would do that only through the help of Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit equip, empower, encourage this morning and allow your church to pass the baton so that we can be a light in darkness, so that we can be hope for the hopeless, so that we can bring joy to those who have none. Allow us, Jesus, to step into your plan and to pass this baton of faith for generations to come. In Jesus' name we pray. This has been the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc.